thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. I'm really glad to have you join me today for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, we're going to jump into how what we've been talking about the last two weeks and in this series as a whole relates to legislation currently being debated at the state capitol and a statement that was in the Tennessean this week about it from an opponent of that legislation. I think you're going to find this really fascinating today to see how we've been talking about relates to a bill dealing with teachers and their students in public schools. Now, I want to begin, though, by recapping the main point of the previous two episodes so that when we look at this law, what is being said, what is being done, what is being addressed will stand out and it'll be clear. And I believe when we finish, you will see the relevance of what we've covered for the last two weeks and it will make practical and real what was indeed rather theological in its content for the last two weeks. So let me, let me just recap that so that we'll have a, a great contrast and relief, so to speak, between uh, what we've said and what we'll be saying today. Last week, we completed a little two-week tour of the Christian foundation for seeing why Jesus Christ is the only foundation that can be laid for understanding anything or for understanding everything. You'll recall that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And, and we also asserted that that is why the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, that it's in the knowledge of God the Father and the Son and coming to the knowledge of that and growing in our knowledge of that, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in regard to all things are to be found. So the first thing I did two weeks ago is I covered those concepts of those two verses in the context that without the generative nature of the Father expressed in the Son, the concept of the Son was eternally begotten of the Father, there could be no creation at all, period. And if you missed that, let me encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast two weeks ago. Then last week, I covered the thought that the Son of God is the image of God in an absolute sense, and that we are, in a relative creaturely sense, that very image of God also. That in other words, when Adam was created, it was with a view toward the Son of God taking on human flesh and becoming the second Adam and the last man. We mentioned that concept is found, that truth is found in Romans 5.14. And the concept of Jesus being the second Adam and the last man is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I explained why this understanding of who we are is critical because law is directed to persons and their activities and their conduct. 
So it's fundamentally important that we know what it means to be human as our civil law is developed. And, and that's why I'm going to close today's episode with a comment by my friend and past podcast guest, Jeff Schaefer. Uh, you want to listen to what he's got to say in less than two minutes. He will explain why this creational context is vital to our understanding of who we are individually, of society and of law, and the proper functioning of all three. It's a, it's a statement you're going to want to chew on for the next week, I guarantee you. Uh, but to make, the, again, the importance and the gravity of what he says and what we've been talking about the last two weeks, so shine like stars on a moonless night out in the desert, we need to grasp what the law today says about who we are and what it means to be human. Now, I'm going to warn you that what you're about to hear should rattle you to your core. If you have any grasp by faith of the glory of God, not just as Savior, but prior to that, as Creator, remember we've drawn this distinction that often in the church today we think of Christianity, we think of uh, what we believe only in a soteriologic, salvific perspective, and we've divorced our soteriology and our concepts of salvation from the cosmological context set forth in Genesis 1 and 2, in that Jesus is, as Paul asserts in 1 Corinthians 3.11, the foundation of all things, not just our salvation, but all things. And what you're going to here, I believe, will appall you and it'll break your heart because you will see how far we have fallen in our nation. You will see the gravity of the situation. But I want you to hang in there with me because we're going to end with hope, a glorious hope, not just for an eternity, but for this life and for when temporal space and time are no more. And Jeff Schaefer's comment, I think, will uh, be a wonderful introduction to exploring that thought more fully next week. So with that being said, here we go. So let me tell you about this bill, and here's what it says. I'll just read it to you. It's, it's pretty short. It says this, a teacher or other employee of a public school or local education agency, and then it says three things relative to that teacher or employee. And by the way, that would be, you know, a janitor, a secretary, a hall monitor, whatever it would be, other than a teacher. It says, one, that that person is not required to use a student's preferred pronouns when referring to the student if the preferred pronoun is not consistent with the student's biological sex. In other words, you don't have to see Susie and call Susie they or he. You can call Susie she and her. Secondly, the bill says it's not the, the person, the teacher, is not civilly liable for using a pronoun that is consistent with the biological sex of the student to whom the teacher or employee is referring, even if the pronoun is not the student's preferred noun. Student's preferred pronoun. Okay, so. You can't recover damages for your emotional stress and so on and so forth because the teacher calls Sally she. Now, the third part of the bill 
is that the teacher is not subject to adverse employment actions for not using a student's preferred pronoun that is inconsistent with the student's biological sex. Now, uh, to me, that's the most important provision of this of the statute because the there really isn't any kind of violation of a, of a right for which damages could be recovered by not using a person's preferred pronouns. But, of course, the teacher or the employee of the school system could be fired, and that's why that provision is so important. Now, this is the quote from an article in the Tennessean from an opponent of the legislation, and let me urge you to listen to it carefully. The person said, quote, ultimately, all students have a right to their identities. This includes trans and non-binary students. It is bad public policy to pass laws encouraging school personnel to ignore the identities of students. Now, let me, let me read that again. Yeah, there's a lot packed in this statement. Ultimately, all students have a right to their identities. This includes trans and non-binary students. It is bad public policy to pass laws encouraging school personnel to ignore the identities of students. Now, let's just stop and think through this. All students have a right to their identities. Right there, we're now talking about a right, okay? And, and notice, it's not the right to the identity that we've been given. In other words, I should not have somebody harassing me at school because they keep calling me a girl or, or uh, Diane instead of David. No, you have a right to your identity. See, what we're saying here is identities are subjective. There's nothing given or true about them. We each have our own identity. So the male who considers himself a he and a him is the same as the trans and non-binary student who says my maleness is not my identity. My biological realities are irrelevant to my identity even as they are really irrelevant to the student who identifies consistent with their biology. You see what we're saying here? That, that, that all are the same in the subjectiveness of their identity. And so therefore, it is wrong to allow some people, David, who identifies as a he and a him, to have their preferred pronouns while discriminating against those who want to have their own pronouns. There is no reality to maleness. And that's now a right so, so to recognize any givenness to what it means to be human, to be created biologically male or female, is now bad public policy. 
you can't have a public policy rooted in any ontological truth regarding the nature of what it means to be human and to be male and female. That constitutes bad public policy. Now, I just have to say here, friends, and, and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very clear and unequivocal. Can there be any greater blasphemy in God's ears than for a person to deny God's existence as our creator? To say effectively, the earth is not the Lord's, nor any of the things in it. I can't imagine standing in front of God someday and saying, you really don't exist, and none of this was yours, and none of it was your business. Now, I guess if you believe there's no God, of course, there can be no blasphemy there. But if there's a God, that has to be in the higher order of blasphemy. It, it's to say that God has not made us, and, and listen to this, no one is or can be his people or the sheep of his pasture. Now, that last part is terribly important. What greater contempt could one cast upon God than to say the incarnation and the death of Jesus was pointless and useless, that the Father did not send a shepherd? Remember Jesus saying that? I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. What greater contempt could one cast upon the Son of God and the Father who was well pleased into, with him to say he was not a shepherd, he was not sent here to claim God's sheep for his pasture because he can't have any people and he doesn't have any pasture. Do you see what is taking place with the opposition to this bill? Do you see what has taken place that would even create the need for this bill. I, I'm not denigrating the bill, but the fact that the bill is needed is indicative of how far we have fallen from the concept that God is our creator. And look, I, I'm just going to be real honest. Why is that so? Because the church has by and large focused almost exclusively on soteriology and salvation and escaping hell and going to heaven, that we've uprooted our soteriology from the context of creation that's crying out to us about the glory of God that is revealed in what's been made. Well, my friends, we, we have brought this upon ourselves by shrinking the Bible, by shrinking the gospel, it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian to proclaim a whole gospel. Genesis 1 and 2 cannot be treated as simply the preface, the introduction of characters for the sake of Genesis 3.15 that I will send a seed to crush the devil. We've brought this upon ourselves by not seeing Jesus Christ as the foundation for all things in which all things are laid, and we've limited, as I said I did, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 
to matters of salvation and soteriology, and that is not what the Apostle Paul is saying, and it can't be what he was saying when he says in Colossians that in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you're not understanding that, if you don't get that, if you don't grasp that, if you don't grow in that knowledge, he says in verse 4 of Colossians uh, 2, that you'll be taken, you'll be deceived. I think it's in verse 8. He says, you'll be taken captive. You'll lose your prize. You'll be robbed of it. And there we are. So you have to ask then, well, how did we get here? I've already talked about that, obviously, from a Christian theological doctrinal standpoint, but how did we get here to this point in the law, to having a right, a claimed legal right, a right that public policy must recognize or else it's bad public policy to our own individual subjective identities. I actually just crossed my mind. If you have a subjective theology, you're going to wind up with a subjective understanding of the image of God, which will lead to a subjective identity. Our subjective theology in the church is another thing I should have added to what I just previously said. But how did we get here in the law. I'm going to cut to the chase right now. And I think I will probably end here today and go to the clip from Jeff Schaefer, but I want to come back to this and explore what was happening over time that led to this. But here is the statement that was the introduction, the first statement, in Obergefell versus Hodges, a decision by the United States Supreme Court in 2015 in which the court said that state statutes providing for marriage licenses could no longer give any recognition to any ontological, substantial, real, uh, true understanding of male and female and what that means with respect to the marital relationship. You have to understand that when the court said that, it was completely deconstructing humanity, what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. And here's the opening sentence to that case. It is horrific and mind-boggling. The court said, the Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, which of course would be every person, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. Now there we go. Let me, let me just use some ellipses here. The Constitution promises liberty to all to define and express their identity. Let me say that one more time. The Constitution promises liberty to all to define and express their identity. Liberty is now the right to understand who I am, to create my own identity. There is nothing given about it. Liberty is me constructing, defining, and expressing my identity. Now, you know, in the past, the founders might want to say, if you want to think you're a dog or a cat, or even though you're a boy, you're a girl, you know, you can think that all you want, but, but the law can regulate conduct, expression. Well, not anymore. Now, don't take any comfort in the idea here of within a lawful realm because when this identity as male and female is unlawful, is unconstitutional, 
within the realm of marriage, the one institution defined in terms of male and female, in what other context could it even be lawful to recognize that distinction and have a law that recognizes that distinction? And in any event, my friends, that distinction and that realm is not going to be decided by your state legislature. It's going to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. So just expect that if a law like this is, is passed that we've been talking about, some students are going to say, this, this is the government violating my right to define and express my identity. Just expect it. It'll be there. It'll be filed. Now, friends, there we are. There we are. Now, the reality is this. This has been building for a long time. And next week, I want to cover some of what led to this. It's been going on since, well, 1925 is the first really important case uh, that I can trace this to. It was cemented into law in 1938. And, and essentially, uh, God was completely repudiated as any aspect of or foundation for or having any relevance to law or the Constitution. And we're going to look at that next week. But I want to close, as I said, with this statement by my friend Jeff Schaefer. Only in fitting within a created structure of meaning, within a wholeness, can individuals and their associations be truly apprehended and meaningful. When we do away with the truth of our context, that is, with creation, its manifest wisdom and telos, with the triune author of our existence, whose self-revelation and providence hold all things together, we disintegrate in concept, in society, and in law. When King Nebuchadnezzar gazed out upon an impossibly complex empire and ascribed its existence and features to himself, at that moment, he was divinely permitted to learn by experience the implication of his claimed autonomy and was released from an orienting grasp on existence. His loss of sanity and his reduction to a grazing beast of the field is instructive. Also instructive is his return to sanity, which followed upon turning his gaze to heaven and was accompanied by his explanatory doxology acknowledging God's sovereign necessity, praising and extolling and honoring the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and in his ways justice. Conceding the truth of his place and creaturely dependency within the meaningful world, his mind was restored to health and function. Herein also resides the path of restoration of community and of the law that properly is the repository of the community's reason, designs, and restraints that strive to conform to and remind us of the immutable truths of our created being in context within this ever-astonishing divine gift of life. Thank you. In other words, what Jeff is saying is that apart from the context of creation, we don't know who we are, individually, in our relationships with each other, in society, or in law, it all disintegrates. And I'm going to tell you, friends, unless that creational foundation is reasserted in our law by our state legislators, then it's sort of game over for multiple generations with respect to any restoration 
of the image of God. And if we are silent and remain silent, then the condemnation we will receive and the oppression and the vitriol and the hatred that we will experience will be justly deserved by God who says, I will create for me a spotless, holy bride. And when his people do not see nor care that the entire foundation for law has been removed and we have created ourselves, then the judgment on us is just. But, as I said, there is hope. There is hope if we will again see the purpose of God towards which he is directing all of history and join with him in that. We're going to be talking about that next week and the week after, and I hope you will join me then for other episodes of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.